0: Desire gives you suffering. Whenever any desire arises, you want to go near it, you want to achieve it, and you do, then you are happy, aren't you? You may think it is the object of desire that made you happy, but really it is the momentary absence of desire that follows immediately after the satisfaction of the desire. And that is from a guru named Papaji. You know, artists have so many desires. We want our work to be successful. We want to sell our work. We want it in museums. And sometimes you get those things and they're not what you thought they would be. Mm -hmm. So kind of what is the essence of desire and how do you have satisfaction in the moment as opposed to ticking off boxes?
1: yeah (laughs) geez you're going deep right from the beginning i am yeah welcome to the installation art podcast the world's number one and only podcast about installation art and the people who work with it i am your host anastasia parmson and on this episode we'll have a slightly different perspective My guest today is American artist Lisa Kellner, based in Maine, who got quite known and successful for doing site-specific silk installations or paintings in space, as she calls them. Lisa worked on these for several years until her excitement started to wane and she became less interested in showy, awe-inspiring installations and felt the tug to paint again. I found her through her beautiful organic textile installations and I invited her on the show because I realized she stopped making the installations, which I found very intriguing and I wanted to know why. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Lisa Kellner. Let's start with some silly questions. Okay. <laughs> on a scale of 1 to 10, how weird are you? <sighs> I guess a 7 to 8.
0: But I don't look like a 7 to 8. I look more like a, a 4 or a 5, I guess.
1: <laughs> but I'm weird in my mind. <laughs> yeah, well, same. <laughs> What's your favorite beverage in the studio? My favorite beverage
0: is seltzer with a little ice and a little kombucha, just to give it some flavoring. It's like my Mm. afternoon treat. Sounds
1: delicious, actually. I should try that. It's great. It's great. And if you weren't an artist, what would you be? I'd be an artist. I don't don't think I can be anything else. (laughs) (laughs) I've thought about that a lot. I've tried a lot of things. Have you tried not being an artist? Yes.
0: Yeah. When I was much younger, yeah, I tried to do the practical thing. And um, immediately gravitated back and found my way into a career. So, yeah, an artist struggling, not struggling, thriving, not thriving. That's the thing that grounds me.
1: Yeah. Let's get into it and start from the beginning. Where did you grow up and were you a creative kid?
0: I was born in Virginia in the United States. And then at a very young age, at about two, I lived in Jamaica, the island of Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And then I lived in Australia. Oh,
1: um, whereabouts yeah. in Australia?
0: Canberra. My dad's job took us to these places. So I came back to America with an Australian accent um, <laughs> <laughs> when I was about seven, eight years old. and. Lived in Virginia and Boston and New York and, yeah, traveled a lot.
1: You've moved around. Yeah,
0: it's been good. Good to see the world early. Mm -hmm. My mom's Danish, so we went to Europe a lot see my grandparents. So just had a little bit of a more open perspective compared to the kids in Virginia that I grew up with, maybe
1: hmm Yeah, I Sh- bet. I shouldn't
0: generalize, but I guess it felt that way.
1: And what kind of stuff were you into as a kid?
0: I think about this a lot. I grew up in a generation where, you know, there were no cell phones. I could go on my bike at the age of seven, and nobody cared where I was as long as I was home for dinner. Yeah. So, you know, second grade, I'm riding all over the place, and. I was always an outdoorsy kid, always. So besides drawing, um, hiking, and when I was little, I had a friend that I would make these little mud cities with under a tree. She'd come over. We wouldn't even talk. We knew she'd come over. We'd make these like stick people in mud cities. (laughs) (laughs) It was great you know, playing in creeks, playing outside. That was my happy place, still is my happy place. Mm
1: -hmm. And can you remember what you wanted to be growing up?
0: You know, I was always interested in creating when I was very little in Australia. I would line up all my stuffed animals and teach them. I like to be the teacher.
1: I think I played that game a few times. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or boss them.
0: I had an imaginary friend called Poopadoo. So (laughs) I guess some sort of creation. I didn't know what an artist was, Mm -hmm. but um, I was always creating or making something and bossing around my stuffed animals. And
1: so did you go to college? Did you study something?
0: I went to Boston University, Mm -hmm. and I had a fantastic high school art teacher, but I didn't have parents that thought art was a great career, so I didn't really have the support to go to art school, nor did I have the courage at the time to demand and do it anyway. So I went to school. I got a finance and a marketing degree. Wow. And... Yeah, yeah. But the whole time I was there, I was taking creative classes, photography classes, anytime I could squeak them in, and worked in investment banking in New York, and very, very quickly went back to school at night. I started my own mural
1: painting business, and then
0: I would go to school at night. I went to art school, and then I eventually got a, a master's
1: master's in?
0: In fine art at Lizzie University in Boston.
1: What made you decide to take that step and start studying art? When I was working
0: in finance, I was doing all kinds of painting and painting on the side and wanted to, well, actually, you know, I hit 30 and I had I have children, so I had my last child, and boy, this is personal, but I'm going to share it anyway. Um, I was really thrilled with my children, but there was something missing, and I broke down crying in the kitchen and said to my husband, if I don't do this, I'm going to regret it. And mm-hmm. he was very supportive, and I went back to school at night. This was... Uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and it was affordable to go to college then. Right,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then I started this mural painting business, so I would paint during the day and take classes at night and did that for uh, four or five years. I did that, mm-hmm. maybe even six years. Loved it. Loved every minute of that. Yeah. So it was just... I thrived in that.
1: So you quit finance and you started the mural painting while studying. No more finance job.
0: Yeah, I was working um, part-time in finance and then Mm -hmm. started painting, painting murals. A couple people hired me. It was like a word-of-mouth thing. So one person hired me and her decorators started hiring me to do murals in people's houses. So I would work for direct people, but I also had three or four decorators that would hire me and pretty much let me do what I wanted to do. So I'd come up with a design. Murals were really big back then. I don't know that they are now, but, you know, there were several houses that I painted, five or six rooms Wow, on the ceiling closets, the kids' rooms, um, trompe ceiling designs, faux finishes, gold leafing. And it paid. It paid really well. So it was great to be paid for being able to paint yeah. and having some constraints, but not, you know, people
1: trusted me to do a good job for the most part. So how did you go from there? to making your installation work?
0: I knew I wanted to get a formal degree in art, and I didn't feel I needed to do a bachelor's because I already had a bachelor's, and I had taken all these supplemental courses or night courses. So I applied for a master's program. And what's interesting is because I'd been doing all this painting for other people, I didn't know what I wanted to say with paint for myself, and I had really good spatial awareness because of the mural painting. If someone hired me to paint four walls and a ceiling, I would make a a template of the design and then implement that so I had a good sense of space and large spaces. I was interested in other materials, found materials and reusable materials and how to affect space using those materials like quilting pins, coffee filters, clay, silicone. I mean, I was trying everything. So the exploration really happened while I was getting my master's and really playing around You know, I would make these paper sculptures with encaustic and paper and embroider into them and make them into sculptures. Mm -hmm. That was one thing I was doing. And really staying away from canvas and painting because I was still in the world of, you know, answering to clients. So Mm -hmm. I just didn't have a voice yet. For that, but while I was doing the sculptural work, I was always making drawings or two dimensional things to go along with them. But the focus became three dimensional work, and then at the time, like two thousand six, there were really good nonprofits that had open calls that you didn't have to pay for, Mm -hmm. and. I really enjoyed the challenge of proposing some sort of a sculptural installation, you know, seeing whether it'd be accepted or not. And I got several of those that were accepted, and I got Mm -hmm. to actually implement them.
1: What was your process for creating those? They were all site-specific?
0: Yeah, I would experiment a lot in my studio, which was my garage at the time. And I would make a lot of failures. I mean, Home Depot, I don't know if they have that where you are, but the hardware store was my art store. And I had been working with clay and a kiln. So I knew my way around clay. I had been making these porcelain objects. So one of the installations was a par in Baltimore, Maryland and i made these clay objects in a creek bed coming out of the creek bed and coming into the landscape there and seeing how art could interrupt a space i was really interested in that mm mm-hmm. my forms were always very biomorphic bodily focused i was interested in the internal i guess i still am the internal and the external you know taking these organ-like forms and putting them out into nature or gallery setting or the wall and seeing what I could do with that. So very experimental. And then I would propose something and make it in my studio and then implement it in the space.
1: hmm So that park in Maryland, that was through one of those open calls. Correct. So you jumped straight into making outdoor public art that's a bold move did yeah. you ever have a moment where you're like i can't do that <laughs>
0: <laughs> well i think i was determined my determination was greater than my fear mhm cuz i was starting a little bit later frankly than other people yeah. it felt like so i was determined to get the work out there and was answering these calls. And again, they were, you know, weren't things you had to pay for. They were curated by great curators, great well-known artists, some of them. You know, one was the Washington Project for the Arts in Washington, D.C. They were just great platforms that supported artists in doing something a little abnormal, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I could use one of those
0: right now. Yeah, yeah. Now I I see some of these calls and even the museums, I don't know about where you are, but in in the States, they're asking for $100 for, it's just crazy, you know, to ask that of the artists. It's kind of taking advantage of the artists, it feels like, a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, here, I haven't even come across open calls lately for anything that's fairly high profile. Everything that's high profile right. is decided behind closed doors by curators I don't know. And then yeah. and then the only thing you can apply for is award shows. They all have entry fees and then you have to ship the work and right. get it back. You know, So basically, for the prestige of being in an award show, you're losing money
0: yeah it's tough. It's mm-hmm. tough for artists now, especially. You know, I graduated, I got my master's in two thousand and eight, and that's when the economic crash happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, a lot of those things dried up. a lot of these really good nonprofit organizations kind of they seem to have dried up or shifted their intention a little bit, so it, it is tough. For artists
1: yeah. today. So I found you through images of your the silk works that's like soft, kind of blobby, invading a space yeah. a little bit. How did you get to using silk and doing that sort of work?
0: Again, I was really interested in using materials as symbolic for something. And for me, it was kind of the facade of the body and what's going on internally. So at the time, I was working heavily with clay, Mm -hmm. which I love. I love clay. Hand-building these porcelain shapes. But it, it wasn't giving me what I wanted. I wanted something more ethereal than the clay. Yeah, I went to an exhibit in D.C. on the Japanese shibori technique, and it was mostly clothing and scarves. And I was less interested in the painting and much more interested in the shapes. And I went to like a uh, high-end fabric store and bought some silk organza and just started playing with it. Trying to figure out how to make shapes. So it was mm-hmm. just a lot of experimentation. And I discovered I could make these bulbous forms and sew them together and make a much bigger form, make a room size form. I could paint it, I could dye it. I was using compost teas and dipping mm. it in that and bleach and. I was just putting it through the ringer. There was no one process. I just, you know, ironing it, sewing it, beating it up, and just started playing in my garage studio and hanging it on the wall. And what really captivated me was you could see through it to the other shapes. And the shadows, the light in the shadows became this new element not only was the silk ethereal, but the shadows were ethereal, and they were see-through, so you could see one shadow through the other shadow. That was really interesting to me mm-hmm. um and how to create these shapes in and incorporate negative space. You know, I made a small one, and they just started growing and growing and there's a gallery in d c called Transformer Gallery. They took an abandoned building in D.C., which is now a very nice Whole Foods, but at the time it was an abandoned four-story building in horrible condition, and they accepted my work, and I got the top floor.
1: The whole floor? The whole floor, yeah. Wow.
0: Which, which I think had been an apartment on top of the building, and it was in such bad shape, there was mold everywhere. It's on my website, and there were holes in the floor looking down. But I took my silk pieces, and I just installed them throughout the whole four-room apartment, and that was really the first time I did something that big and that spatial with the silk. Now, that particular exhibition, which was one of my first ones, It opened, and then the health department came in and shut the whole thing down (laughs) because the building was unsafe. And we were given an hour and a half to get our work out of there. Oh, my God. How long did it
1: take you to install
0: it? Three or four days to install it, besides the making of the pieces at home. But because it was closed down, it got a lot of press. So it ended up being this little blessing in disguise for the artists because we got attention from the papers and the magazines, even though a lot of people did not actually get to see the show.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's been your biggest opportunity so far for installation work?
0: My biggest opportunity, which I turned down, was... Was I was approached by a company to do an installation. They had me sign a non disclosure agreement and it was going to be part of a television commercial. I was really excited about that. And then they sent me a a sample picture of what they wanted me to make. Mm -hmm. And it was this very well known artist's work. And I realized they just wanted. A cheaper version of her work. I immediately emailed them and said, I will not do this. And they were like, Why won't you do it? I'm like, because you're copying this well known artist's work and I don't want to be associated with that. Wow. Um, yeah. So financially, that was a big deal. You know, as artists, your integrity gets called into question sometimes. And that was Mm -hmm. one of those times where I know I did the right thing. If I had done it, you know, there was copyright issues. Even though I used different materials, I did not want to even touch that.
1: That must have been a really difficult decision to make in that moment. What was going through your mind?
0: I was really excited because it was going to be... This installation with what they were selling on television or billboards or whatever, and the pay was great. It was a no brainer to say no the minute they sent me the sample of what they wanted me to produce. It was a no brainer because mm-hmm. um it was this well known artist who still shows today, but yeah, there was a little bit of a loss there, you know, a loss that I didn't get to to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I imagine you didn't think, oh, I could just do like a gorilla, my own thing. And then if they don't like well, it, so be it.
0: It was a very serious contract. It was mm-hmm. not, I, you know, the ones that I have done that I've loved have been just, we see your work, we know your work, just go to town. And mm-hmm. that, that's what I love to do. Um, but this one was not that. This was a very serious contract. This is what they wanted. There was a non-disclosure involved, which I, at first I was like, "Why is there a non-disclosure?" Mm-hmm. And then I realized it was because of the other artist's work, and her work goes for millions of dollars. So, um, there was no opportunity there. They would have just canceled it if I had done my own thing.
1: That's pretty bad.
0: Yeah. But I've had so many great experiences where people have allowed me to do what I want to do. And, you know, I do other installation work as well. But with the silk, I will create a sketch of an idea and I have an idea of what I'm working on. But it's silk, it's not a fixed. Rigid structure. It's soft and it's malleable. Um, My experience with sight responsive work is that it is always very, very different when you're in the physical space than what you have on the piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And so I often have to warn people that this is just an idea of what it can look like. The real thing will probably be different, because when I'm up there physically hanging it, I want to make sure it looks a certain way and has a certain feeling, and that's going to be different using the soft textile versus the drawing that I made for you. So that, that's always a learning curve for people.
1: Right. So did you have some issues with that where people were expecting something and then they weren't surprised when you finished installing?
0: Um most of the time people once you explain that to them, they're pretty receptive. But one time I was installing in the lobby of a new loft building. They gave me the lobby to make an installation. And when I got there, there were vents and i realized there were certain places i could not hang the work because it was a fire hazard mm. so the work looked different than originally proposed and so there was conversations about that it, it's a fire hazard there's certain things i cannot do in this space because of the fire pipes the pipes up ahead and then the vents down below but i think when you When you believe in your work and you you really stand firm with it and you communicate that effectively, people understand. They learn. They understand. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've never really had any. Well, I had one. So early on, I did a window installation in Providence, Rhode Island, and they gave me the window of a restaurant. They were doing the whole block with artists. And I had the silk, and my idea was I got a mannequin, and the mannequin was diving through these silk shapes, these biomorphic silk shapes. So I had an upside-down mannequin, and I'm sitting there building the shapes, and the restaurant people start coming out and looking at it and talking and talking to the curator and looking. And I'm just sitting there working on it. And the curator comes up to me and says, they're offended by the mannequin. You can see her butt. <laughs> and I was like, really? <laughs> you know, it was a simple mannequin body. And they insisted that I cover it up. And again, it was, OK, do I just say screw you and leave or do i compromise what did you do i raised the silk a little bit mhm i raised because i was hungry and i wanted my work out there you know this was early on and yeah i wanted it it ended up being a picture in the local paper there and but yeah i thought that was kind of funny would i have compromised now no Mm -hmm. But back then, I was like, all right, I can lift it up a little bit.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Interesting that people thought that would be an issue, the mannequin butt.
0: I know. And today, it probably would not be an issue. This was uh, 2007 or 8, something like that.
1: I'm curious, how did you attach those huge silk pieces to walls and ceilings? So what I would do is I would
0: make little ones. I mean, they were so labor-intensive because I would make tiny shapes and big shapes. And then I would take all these little ones and sew them together into really big shapes that were maybe five feet by seven feet. Then once I got in the space, I would hang those larger pieces and sew those together Mm -hmm. in the space to make like a 20 or 30 foot piece. So there was a lot of sewing going on. It was very light. So I, for the most part, would
1: use thumbtacks. Clear Ah, thumbtacks. Yeah. That's neat if you're able to use thumbtacks to put up something so big. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I would use pins. Sometimes a little hot glue, if there was a window or something. It depended on the space and what they would allow me to do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, if I had nailed it in, there would have been thousands of nail marks. And I also used monofilament fishing line to suspend certain areas. All that gave it more shape. Yeah. So the little shapes, you know, in order to give the big thing more
1: depth and more shapes. I had to
0: manipulate it in the space.
1: How would the impermanence of installation work affect your process and how you think of your work?
0: All the silk works were pretty impermanent. You know, textile work is very big now. At the time I was doing it, it was not big in the States. Mm -hmm. So if I got commissions they had to be like uh, a three-month or a six-month commission because, especially in a public space, I'm thinking of a couple projects that I had. The worry was, how do you take care of this thing long-term that's kind of floating in space? I had to really make a decision. Do I start working with more hard materials? Do I use resin? Do I use glass? I I had a couple conversations with myself about do I need to change materials to make more permanent? Because certain places, museums or public commissions, just were not going to do a long-term thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That was part of it. The other part was, you know, it was my way of saying Not all art has to be commercial or permanent or archival or sold. This was my way of kind of subverting the art world, you know. (laughs) And I really liked the idea of creating something temporary, photographing it, and having those photographs be the permanent result of the work. So what I would do actually is. One work would be brought back down to zero and then used for the new work. So all the painting or anything going on in that fabric was incorporated into the next piece that I was doing.
1: So you would recycle a piece to create the next one?
0: Yeah, I would just wet it all down in the tub. And... It would lose its shape, then use it fresh for the next one and start again, repainting it, reshaping it, resewing it into a new piece. I will say the silk was extraordinarily strong and long lasting. I mean, I still have a couple pieces that I've kept. They will last. It's just when it came to a commercial art world people were very hesitant. So I was like, that's fine. I really don't want to play that game right now anyway. So Mm -hmm. let me just make these pieces without having to kind of answer to those boards and juries, etc.
1: So would you say that when you were saying it's not fit for a permanent work or for being collected by institutions, is it because of perception of what textile art is more than because your work was not archival quality?
0: I think in America at the time, there was very little textile work being made. And I found myself educating the people who did studio visits with me on the work. Mm -hmm. So the hesitancy would not be there today. I think textile work is much more accepted here interestingly enough there was a couple universities in europe in the uk in particular and i by weekly would get student emails asking me about the silk work really yeah i think there was a couple teachers that were just feeding my work to right. their students <laughs> so i think the uk europe was maybe ahead of the U.S. when it came to textile work. Now there's amazing textile work being done in in this country. So I think it would be much more acceptable to have a silk installation like what I was making and have it permanent and people would be willing and able to, to keep it long term. The work will hold up. It's just the concern of dust and cleaning and managing it once they've paid the artist and the artist has left. The work Mm -hmm. was strong, physically strong. I think it's just an educational and a a timing thing. If I was strategic, I'd still be making those works.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If you're strategic, what do you mean by that? Because now it's trending. Right, now it's trending. I'm actually the same with digital drawing, you know? I was super into digital drawing. Like 10 years ago. Right. Because um, I was traveling a lot. It was the only thing I could really do from wherever. And I would go to contemporary drawing fairs and things. And there would be one digital work that looked like pencil on paper. And I'm like. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then the <laughs> NFTs came and went and, you know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's funny. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. the All trends about timing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Your uh, pieces look very tactile and like people would want to touch them. Yes. Did anything ever get damaged or did you kind of consider that aspect while making the work?
0: You know what? People loved touching them, mm-hmm. especially children. And I was okay with that. Yeah. I have... An installation called I'm Plant or Implant, and it's single pods, hundreds and hundreds of these pods that look like blood cells or breast implants (laughs) or jellyfish, you know, and I would stack them. They were floor installations. And whenever I installed them, inevitably, I knew some would be missing Mm -hmm. (laughs) by the end of the exhibition. You know, people loved squeezing them and holding them. The only time I ever had an issue, you know, when you do an installation, you become proficient at shipping your work in a unique way. And this work Mm. could not be touched. I would make a box within a box and hang it in the box suspended so there was air around it and then put it in another box. Well, one time, the shipping company lost one of the boxes that was going to an exhibition. And they found it and they opened it and they stuffed all this newspaper in. And I was about to have a heart attack. I, I had a heart attack. But the piece came to the curator and she took out all the newspaper and the piece was fine. Mm. So that was lucky. That's how durable the actual silk was but yeah i never had any it was it was great i loved that people would engage with the work you know these installations became i called them paintings in space mm-hmm. i wanted them to be immersive where people were kind of walking through this painting that i did on silk with these forms and the different paints and things sewn together and You were the final component of the painting, was the idea behind them. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. After an exhibition's over, what would happen to the work? Would you always do what you were saying, wash it, and start again? Yeah. Yeah?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I would start again. Shipping it back was pretty easy because (laughs) it would all get reused. I would have to buy additional silk for the next piece, but I always reused what I originally had. One exhibition I had in Brooklyn, the whole idea behind it was it was a six-month exhibition that the piece grew. So I would come back every month and the piece would grow. I would add more to it. But yeah, I would photograph the pieces and then I started videotaping them. I really was interested in the idea of projecting as if a fly was flying through the work. That was the idea of the videos Mm. and allowing that to be the remnants of the work that was left over.
1: Mm -hmm. Was lighting important as well?
0: Yes, lighting is very important, especially for this work, because it's see-through. Again, that's why the sketches were just an idea, but the piece, depending on how I could manipulate the light and incorporate the shadows and the negative space of the walls, several of them I also added wall painting, and then I started adding shapes to them and objects, pins sometimes to them, different things, depending on where it was being shown.
1: You were saying that it's very labor intense to create those pieces. How long would you need to prepare for one installation?
0: Months, because I was also doing it all myself. So I kind of got to that point where... If I want to go bigger, do I have to hire people, you know, get interns? I really did not want to do that. Why not? I'm I'm just a solitary person. I'm a solitary artist and maybe a little bit controlling. Just I knew what I wanted. You know, while you're making it, you're making decisions. So if somebody else is making it, they're not making the creative choices that maybe you would make. So I didn't want to lose that. I wanted to be able to, even with the tiny, small ones, there were certain decisions I had to make, and I just, I wanted to stay present with the work.
1: Mm -hmm. What kind of skills did you have to learn to make that work? I don't know that
0: it's skills as much as an openness to experimentation and failure there were a mm-hmm. lot of failures i was willing to try things out and see them fail and then try to figure out other ways to do things so before the first installation there was months and months of trying to figure out what is this material and how do i use it in the way that i want to use it And just really exploring a new way of making that was effective for me, for what I was trying to do.
1: How would these large installations get funded? So, funding. (laughs) (laughs) The first ones
0: were not funded. And I got to a point where I said to myself, there's three reasons to do a piece. And an exhibition or an opportunity has to meet two of them. One was, it was a great opportunity for my career. Number two was, it was exciting and challenging and would further my work. And the third one was getting paid. So a lot of them in the beginning were great opportunities with great curators or great spaces for me, and also really allowing me to push the boundaries of what I could do with this work, with these materials that I was learning about. And the more I exhibited them, the more I learned about public spaces and how to install and how to install this particular work. As I got a little bit of attention, I would either get a stipend or I would get a commission or I would have to ask for a stipend. And that was surprising to me because I didn't realize until after the fact of one particular exhibition that I was being asked to do something that was going to take me four or five months to make. Mm -hmm. And I asked for a stipend and the curator said, well, nobody's getting a stipend. And I said, well, here's what I have to do to make it. And this is what's required. And this is what I would like. And Mm -hmm. he ended up giving it to me. And I realized that if I hadn't asked, I wouldn't have gotten anything that a lot of people are counting on the artists wanting an opportunity. So all the other artists in that show did not get a stipend unless they asked for one. And this was a museum with a museum budget with a curator traveling the world to visit all the artists. And I was, yeah, that was really eye-opening for me that I really had to advocate for my work and for myself. You know, some places are much more generous and some places aren't, but I think it's really important that artists learn to advocate for their time and their efforts and their labors. I mean, buying material is expensive to make an installation. Yeah. Um, that alone, just paying for the
1: materials. Yeah. Not to mention your time.
0: Yeah. And then what I would also do is I would make drawings or works on paper, and I would sell those through a gallery. Those were in tandem with the installation. So that was the other way.
1: Mm -hmm. So from then on, did you make it a habit to ask for money to cover your costs? Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That must have been hard the first time.
0: Yes, I was so nervous. He came to my studio and I was just so excited about this opportunity. And then the rest was through email. And you know, you kind of go through this thought of, wow, he might just exclude me Mm -hmm. and not want to include my work because I'm asking for something. You know, there's that fear, but I, I, I really think it's important for artists to, you know, feel good about all the time they're spending on putting this work out there and to be rewarded for that and not have to
1: beg for it. Mm-hmm. Or not have to cover it out of pocket. Yes.
0: And, I, you know, honestly, I did that in the beginning because I was hungry and I wanted yeah. the work out there. And I understood there was a, a certain amount of that that had to be done. But at a certain point, you, people want the spectacle of an installation, then they should also compensate the artist for it and compensate them properly for it.
1: So it's not normal practice in the States for institutions to pay an artist fee for an exhibition?
0: I think it varies. There's institutions I've dealt with that do compensate, and then there's been institutions where I had to ask. And that sometimes if they were not able to give me the funding, I would say no. And I think saying no is just as important as saying yes. You know, it's also your comfort level. If you feel comfortable enough to ask, then you should do it. If you're feeling like, oh, I want to get my work out there, just show the work. You know, maybe you're not ready to ask but no it's not standard
1: there is no standard wow okay that i know of mm interesting yeah i mean for people who are still just starting out there's huge value in being able to show and photograph the work so that it's like a proof of concept yes and so yes it can be worth doing it just for the exposure But not, from a certain point, it's not.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's nothing wrong with um, not getting compensated, but having a great opportunity and working with a great curator Mm. and meeting other artists. Those are invaluable also. Curating your own CV and making sure that you're showing in a way that's in line with your values and where you want the work to go,
1: really. Mm. Yeah, great insights. So did you ever sell an installation? Yes. Well,
0: again, these were temporary. So I would also make sculptures, small silk sculptures, four feet by three feet. So a couple of those sold. Um, And then I would get a commission to put up an installation for six months, that type of a thing. To me, I considered that sold because Mm -hmm. I never thought of these as permanent. Again, if I was making them today, you know, it's a different world today than it was in 2008, 2012 even. Um, They just were not acceptable. As permanent installations. So,
1: so tell me about why and how you decided to step away from installation.
0: So, I was still making these around 2019, and um, a couple things happened. I was not feeling as challenged by them. I felt Mm -hmm. like, you know, they were just the same thing in a different space. And honestly, the one thing I love about installation work is being in that space alone and transforming that space and really being challenged by the space. That was the thing that kept me going. But I, you know, I was, Pretty adept at doing that by then. And so it wasn't as much of a a challenge. And then the pandemic happened. So I had three exhibitions canceled. And even though I had them scheduled, was I excited about them? Not as much as I had been. And I took that as my cue to say, it's time to let go of this. In addition to that, I was painting. Again, I had been painting on canvas and really wanted to develop that. I also was interested in spatial concerns, but I was so tied to the silk work that I couldn't think outside of the silk. And I I needed to distance myself from it in order to kind of open up my mind to other iterations of how to affect space which mm-hmm. has always been my primary interest you know i just everything i was thinking was silk and i was like mm-hmm. okay <laughs> it's time to take a break from that so um yeah
1: that's what happened but you were still quite sought after weren't you like you could have kept going with it I could have kept going, but
0: I just was not, I felt like I was kind of phoning it in and I didn't want to phone it in. The one thing about being an artist is we get to do these amazing things and I didn't want it to feel like a slog. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I was like, oh, well, I can just hire people to make it and I'll just hang it. But I didn't want to be that detached. I had these other ideas. I wanted to think about space in new ways besides the silkware. You know, I had been doing other things, but the silk was becoming like the primary thing.
1: Yeah, it invaded you, like it invaded yeah. space.
0: <laughs> yeah, which was a wonderful journey, but... um Sometimes you have to know when the journey is ending and allow it to end and go on to other things.
1: Mhm. Could you highlight a particularly rewarding or memorable transformative experience you've had as an artist?
0: A transformative experience. I think with the installation work in particular And, you know, this becomes like a little advice thing to other artists is I realized getting my work out into the world, I learned so much more about that work and about myself than I would learn just keeping it in my studio or, you know, today keeping it on social media. Being in physical space and talking to people and engaging with the work, that was the most rewarding thing. I learned so much from other people. For instance, the I'm plant floor installations, I saw them as jellyfish or blood cells, and this person came up to me and said, they look like breast implants. And I was like, oh my God, they do. And that just, you know, know, it was really, and then I had this um, LA gallery show that work, and it was just so great to show that work in LA at that time. So just engaging with other people with the work was the most rewarding, is the most rewarding thing yeah. for me.
1: Yeah. You do learn a lot about your work when it's out in the world. Yeah. And what has been the proudest moment of your career so far for you? Gosh, these are hard questions. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think...
0: Keeping my integrity and learning to say no, Mm -hmm. and learning what my values are and what's important, and not falling sway to trends or what other people think I should make or told me to do. I guess I'm proud of kind of finding my own way, and allowing that to be good enough, great.
1: Yeah, that's a big one. Not everyone can do that.
0: Yeah, it's hard, very hard.
1: What would you say is the most important trait someone needs to succeed as an artist?
0: Tenacity and taking the time to discover who you are and what's important to you. I think you have to know that first. And you're going to change. What's important to me 20 years ago is different than what's important to me today. But knowing that and then making work that supports that, then you're able to stand behind your work. So really knowing who you are and being tenacious
1: and knowing your values. If you could wave a magic wand and do your dream project where you don't have to worry about budget, you can do it anywhere with anyone, what would you do?
0: What would I do?
1: I would do something in
0: nature. If I didn't have to worry about weather, I would make a piece in the woods. Like a land art intervention? I guess so. Yeah. Something in the water, something in the woods. Mm -hmm. And I'd have a lot of people help me make it. (laughs) Mm.
1: So you do want people to help you. You don't want to do everything alone.
0: No, I want to do everything alone, but you're asking if I had my dream project and if it was this huge thing, yeah. And I wouldn't worry about other people making it. <laughs> ah,
1: there you go. <laughs> I would give up the control a little bit. <laughs> Something to think about then, a subliminal message here. <laughs> That's so true. It's so true. <laughs> Something to work on in 2024, yeah. for sure. <laughs> Yeah, a new challenge. Yes. (laughs) Oh, that's a big one. That's a big one. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Mm. Delegating, seating control. Yeah. Some people do it really well. They do. And some people just don't know how.
0: Maybe maybe something more community-based where everybody's participating. I'm Mm. kind of interested in that making a piece where everybody's contributing mm-hmm. and it's not just focused on me and my work.
1: Mm-hmm. Like,
0: that would be fun and challenging, and I, I'd be interested in that.
1: What are you currently working on?
0: So I'm currently making paintings and constructions that are, the paintings are pretty minimal and the constructions are these shaped pieces that kind of go on the wall and incorporate the space of the wall and the negative space. I make these minimal paintings, and then I break down the paintings into these constructions. Mm -hmm. And so, again, playing with space in a different way.
1: So kind of like deconstructed painting.
0: That's right. That's what Mm -hmm. I
1: call them, deconstructed Ah. paintings. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. I And again, they're labor intensive and I'm working with wood, which uh, is a challenge for me. I'm not a woodworker. So learning those skills um, as I make them and getting a little better every time I make them and seeing what shapes I can make and then playing them off of the, the painted canvases is really kind of interesting to me. Seeing them, how they work together and how they play with space.
1: What does your studio look like?
0: Oh, I love my studio. Um, Where is it? It's in Maine. I live in Maine on an island off the coast, a bridged island. Mm -hmm. And I live down a long dirt road in the woods. My studio's in the barn. I made it a white space and everything's on wheels so I can move things around depending on what I'm working on. It's not a huge space. Uh, You know, the dream is to have this huge, huge, huge studio, but it's a good space. It's functional, and I can move and shift tables and things. I work a lot on the floor, and I work a lot on the walls, so my walls have plastic on them. You know, sometimes I'm sawing and sanding and sometimes I'm painting and sometimes I'm working on canvas. So it depends what I'm working on.
1: Sounds great. I'm dreaming of a home studio. You know, it's great to have a home studio, but
0: sometimes you just don't know when the day ends. So I will Mm. literally be in there seven days a week. And sometimes it's just enough already. By Monday, I'm exhausted. And I'm like, okay, I have to take a day away from the work, you know, so. Yeah, yeah.
1: for me, that would not be an issue. It's more an issue of my hobby complaining, right. Why are you working right. all the time? <laughs> right.
0: <laughs>
1: Which is understandable. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but maybe, you know, if it's not in your home, you know, not something you can walk to, you're a little more focused, you know, I'll go in there and spend a lot of time looking and cleaning up because I'll make a mess, you know, so Mm -hmm. maybe if I had to drive to a studio, I'd be a little bit more focused while I'm there.
1: Yeah, there's pros and cons. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you have anything exciting coming up in the near future? Any projects, exhibitions? Yeah, I have some exhibitions
0: coming up. There's a couple galleries I work with in Maine. Mm. I have some work coming up this summer with one of them. And I also have some works on paper with a
1: space in South Carolina. Where can people? Buy your work? See your work? Where's your upcoming exhibition? I guess
0: the best place to find all that out is my website, which is com. The galleries that I work with are linked there. And then this spring, I'm hanging some work at a bar, restaurant, event space in Maine, and I'm really kind of excited about it because they have drag queen shows and concerts, and I will have my paintings and my deconstructed paintings hanging there. So cool. Yeah. And that's called Hay Sailor. So that will be this spring. I think the opening is April 6th, and it will be for three months. Great. It'll all be on my website.
1: Yep. Well, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. What about your Instagram?
0: My Instagram is at Lisa Kellner Studio. Mm -hmm. You can follow me there. That would be great. I love when people reach out, whether it's through email or DMs. It's great to connect.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Lisa, for coming on the show and telling me your interesting stories. Really great having you.
0: Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much.
1: That was Lisa Kellner, based in coastal Maine. You can check out her work on her website, lisakellner.com, and on her Instagram at Lisa Kellner studio. She's represented by several galleries in Maine, New York, and South Carolina. And if you're in Maine, you can go see her work in person at Hay Sailor, opening on April 6, 2024. All the links can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Installation Art Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit follow or subscribe on your podcast app. It really helps. Hey, just one more thing. If you're an artist working with installation or thinking about it or dreaming about it, I have something for you. I've created a private Facebook group called the Installation Art Society where we can connect and exchange resources. Look for the link at the bottom of the show notes.